I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, do extraordinary claims really require extraordinary evidence? This is a pretty big deal because this slogan, this phrase here is literally the reason that many people have for rejecting the truth of the resurrection of Christ. So um, I wonder what happens if we patiently evaluate the slogan, if we just think it through. Do extraordinary claims really require extraordinary explanations? What if it turns out that this is not clear thinking, that it's not actually good thinking? So uh, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. Uh, my name is Mike Winger, and I do this weekly here on YouTube. I'm a pastor in Southern California, and I do uh, talks on YouTube about theology and apologetics. In fact, uh, today's all about apologetics. Next week, we'll be digging back into some more theology stuff, actually probably for a few weeks after today. Um, but what we're going to be doing today is talking about this slogan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So let me first say, if you have questions, Go ahead and put them in the comment section and the mods are going to grab those from the live chat. I really am live with you right now. This isn't pre-recorded. Um, and I will try to answer as many of those questions as I can. At the end of the stream, just put a cue. You guys know the routine. Put a cue at the beginning of your question so we know it's a question. But let me start by telling you guys where the slogan came from. This is Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was uh, a, um, in the 60s, he had a TV show, I, I think it was just called Cosmos. I'm trying to remember now. I was not alive, so don't blame me for not remembering <laughs> things from before I was alive. But, uh, but he, he's famous for being a popularizer of science. Um, he's also famous for saying billions and billions a lot. And he said that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Now, after... He said this, I think he applied it to aliens mostly, um, but others applied it to God, like Christopher Hitchens. In his debates with William Lane Craig, that's how he would use this phrase. Um, he would just say, nope, not good enough. Your evidence isn't good enough. It's not good enough. That was kind of his normal thing to say. Uh, because extraordinary claims, like the resurrection of Jesus, the existence of God, they require extraordinary evidence. It may even go back to David Hume, though, in the 1700s, because he says some similar things, although he never uses the slogan itself. So as far as origin, the origination, you know, there's a debate here. Maybe it was Hume who kind of started the idea or helped first popularize the idea that you can just ignore and dismiss claims that you feel are ridiculous or extraordinary or outside your own worldview. You can just kind of chuck those and not even seriously consider the evidence because there's just never enough. Um, and that's and that's the next thing. Now, you might think I'm exaggerating, but that's the next thing. We're going to talk about how it's used. This, this slogan, before we evaluate um, whether it's wise or not, we're going to talk about how it's used. What happens is a Christian, like maybe myself, will say, hey, here's really good reasons, evidence, you know, to believe in God. Really good evidence to believe in the resurrection of Christ or good evidence to believe in biblical inspiration. And I've got all these things on my YouTube channel just you know, trying to build a case to the best of my ability. Others have done it and have done even better with it. And I recommend you guys always be keeping your eyes out for other apologists or other people who've uh, done better work than I have on these topics, you know, and learn from them. But I'll, I'll definitely be keep doing my best on them. But I bring in the evidence, you know, God, the resurrection, biblical inspiration, something like that. And the response sometimes is, as they use this phrase, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, is, hey, Mike, that's fine. Fine, you have evidence. I see your evidence there, but it's just not good enough. It's just not good enough. And you start to wonder, well, what's good enough? Well, 
all I'm saying is your claims are extraordinary. Your evidence needs to be equally extraordinary. And that's when you start to recognize there's something fishy going on here. Because you bring good evidence, it should bring you to a simple, you know, logical conclusion. But this this claim, you know, that's popularized by some really smart guys, but you can be smart and wrong. Lots of people are smart and wrong on an issue. This happens all the time. Um, this claim is being used to throw away good evidence or throw away good reasoning or subvert your normal process of evaluating things to see if they're true and to get you to just throw them out based upon how they're extraordinary, whatever that means. So I I conducted some Twitter, uh, you know, I wouldn't say polls. They weren't polls. It was a request. I asked questions on Twitter since uh, I have a lot of atheists presently following me on Twitter. I thought, oh, I have access to them. Let me ask them questions and then I can share that information in the stream to make sure I represent them correctly. So I'll be doing that today uh, to represent how they use this phrase and how it just doesn't work. Now, some people really like the phrase, uh, and, and I, I'm somewhat sympathetic to people who really like the phrase. You know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, but it never seemed good to me. It always seemed fishy to me, and, and not because I'm a Christian, but because it just, it's not clear. When I first heard it, I thought, what does that mean? Like, this doesn't seem like a normal rule of logic, right? It's just, it's just this muddy kind of thing. I, I feel like the word extraordinary means one thing in one place and it means something different in the next part of the argument. That's equivocation right there. You're using the same word in different ways. That's not really helpful for thinking. I felt like it was a cop-out. I felt like it was a way to dodge evidence instead of think it through. But I'm sympathetic in one way and I'll start by saying this. I don't want to be gullible. I don't want, none of us wants to be gullible, right? We, we, we don't want to be believing things that we shouldn't believe or believing things for insufficient reasons. And so we can have this as our protection. Well, that's an extraordinary claim. I won't believe it unless I have extraordinary evidence. But when you actually examine it carefully, you find out this thing won't keep you from being gullible. This thing will keep you in denial. And I'm going to walk you through this today. At least this is my understanding of it. And I hope that you benefit from it and it helps your conversations a little bit. So here we go. Here's five things. Five things that are just plain wrong with the phrase, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Number one, the claim itself looks like it very well may be self-defeating. Now, in the in the realm of like thinking, right? Like we all like to do this called this thing called thinking. You know, if you have a self-defeating claim, that's a claim you don't want to have. You know, you don't want to be saying that anymore. That's the idea. Um, so people will present it like it's a truism. It's a, it's just a fact of reality. I'll explain how it's self-defeating now. Um, but this this claim doesn't meet its own standard because if it's a truism, if it's a fact of reality, if it's like a a overarching policy for how we evaluate claims, then it's in itself is an extraordinary claim. That's not an ordinary claim. It's a fact of reality of how we evaluate all kinds of categories of evidence. And um, the question then follows, right? Do I have extraordinary evidence to show that this statement is true? Because if I don't have extraordinary evidence to show that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, then it seems to refute itself. So that's one problem that it has. And I don't know how people would overcome that problem. I'd like to hear them make a thoughtful case for it. I don't, it seems circular to me or it seems um, self-defeating. Okay, number two. Number two, the second problem I have with this extraordinary claims thing. There's no clear definition of what extraordinary means. And people will sometimes use it, like I said, equivocation, right? They'll use the, the word extraordinary in one way in the beginning of the statement and in a different way in the end of the statement. So I thought, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm getting things wrong? Allow me to go to Twitter 
and where I have a lot of uh, atheists that are um, and agnostics and stuff who follow me there. And so I thought I'll ask, what do you guys think this means? So that when I make my video about it, I'm not misrepresenting them. So I said, here's two questions for those. And I'm showing it on screen for those watching or listening on podcast. But here's the uh, snip from uh, my my Twitter um, post. I said two questions for those who say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I'm already tired of hearing myself say that phrase, by the way. You probably are too. Um, I'll just call it the phrase from here on out. Um, So number one, what exactly qualifies a claim as extraordinary? Number two, what exactly qualifies evidence as extraordinary? Please be as precise as possible. Thank you. Now, when I did this on Twitter, my agenda was not to debate. I don't really debate on Twitter for one. It's like, it doesn't really work for me that the character limits and the way that conversations branch out in unmanageable ways. Maybe I'm just old. I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going to debate on Twitter. (laughs) So I don't. Um, I was just gathering data. So I pulled in a couple of the uh, answers people gave me. Here's definition, one definition someone gave me. By the way, most people wouldn't define anything. They just give me analogies. They wouldn't answer my questions, most of them. Um, lots of people commented, but very few answers. You're welcome to go look at my Twitter page and you can see it for yourself. It's all still there. Uh, one person said that number one, which would be the, the first question, what exactly qualifies a claim as extraordinary? They said the lower the probability of it being true, the more extraordinary. Okay, this is this is pretty clear. I really appreciate that. It's very clear. If it's If it seems like it's a really unlikely event, you know, statistically speaking, then we'll call it extraordinary. Okay, so like someone winning the lottery, that's extraordinary. Okay, it's, it's out of the ordinary because it's low prior probability. And believe it or not, a lot of people who did try to answer this, they gave the same basic definition for number one. Okay, low prior probability or low inherent probability. Number two, how does he define number two? This particular person says, it depends on the claim. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I'm going to use the same word to mean different things in the same sentence. That's called equivocation. It's it's a fallacy. It depends on the claim. Okay, well, there's there's my problem. <laughs> this is the problem with this whole idea. It's there's no clear definition of it. When you get to what an what a uh, uh, an extraordinary piece of evidence is, nobody seems to know what that is. At least not in any clear way. Another example was. Um, when I, I asked somebody who was commenting back and forth, I said, okay, so what's an example of one piece of evidence that doesn't qualify as extraordinary? And what's an example of one that does? I just want clarity, guys. That's all I'm looking for here. And this person responded, who I know is an atheist. I'm not putting the names up because I felt like I felt like that was a little rude when I did that before. I felt like I don't want to put people's names up, but they didn't ask to be put up. So, um, So this person says, ugh, you don't understand this stuff, do you? A single piece of evidence may be extraordinary for one claim and not for another. It depends on what's expected or probable. E.g., video evidence can be both extraordinary or not, depending on the claim. And now we get to my point here. Number two, my second problem, the definitions are unclear on what extraordinary evidence is in particular. People seem pretty clear on extraordinary claims. Seems like that's consistently um, uh, low, low chance events. And we can just debate whether that's even applies to the resurrection or not. I'll come to that in a little bit. But number two, the idea that um, your definition for extraordinary evidence will change depending on what claim you're evaluating. Now it's really fishy, buddy. Like you're, you're not going to be able to have consistent standards of evidence when you have a fishy shifting definition as part of this weird slogan. So 
What's extraordinary evidence? Who knows? It just becomes subjective. It becomes subjective. So what I thought I should do is I should push a little further on Twitter. I should keep asking people, right? What's an example of extraordinary evidence? That was my next question that I continued to push on. And uh, here's where I put it out. I, I posted a few different things on Twitter in this regard. I said, still trying to get clarity. Dear, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence people. Assuming the resurrection of Jesus really happened in the first century, what are a couple examples of extraordinary evidence we can reasonably expect to find today to build the case? So I asked this question very carefully. I tried to word it very carefully. And in spite of my normal typos on Twitter where I'm just button mashing, I tried to be very careful. And what I'm looking at is, hey, here we are in the 21st century. I'm, I'm digging in the ground in, 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 you know, in Jerusalem. I'm looking at ancient texts from the first century. What type of evidence would I expect to find if Jesus really rose from the dead, right? That they would categorize as extraordinary, meaning it would qualify to even begin to be evidence for the resurrection. This, I thought, was a really great question, and here's why. I figured either we're going to get examples that look like the evidence we have because we have great evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Or we're going to get outlandish stuff that shows that people are just being unreasonable. So now we're putting this extraordinary claims claim to the test. What does it really look like when you take it to the resurrection of Jesus? And here are, let's see, I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people's responses that I pulled off Twitter. Here's the first one. Example of extraordinary evidence that would that we can reasonably expect to find. First one, if he appeared all across the globe and we had stories from all nations rather than just his followers, he wants to be hidden though, I guess. Now, first off, let me just back my way into this particular one. I want to respond to this thing. Um, we don't want stories from his followers. The thing is that these people weren't followers of the resurrection until after they saw him rise. And so it's weird that some people want they want writings from people who don't believe in Jesus saying that they believed Jesus rose from the dead, but then they'd be believers. So it seems weird to want that. At any rate, that's a side, a side issue. The request here is, I'm going to look at ancient history. What do I expect to find if Jesus really rose? What sort of evidence would be extraordinary that might prove it to me that's reasonable to expect? And he goes, he has to appear across the whole globe. Is that what I would expect? I mean, this has nothing to do with the historical record. This has to do with adding a whole new thing. Not just Jesus rose and appeared to people around that time and place when he rose, but it rose and appeared to people who were far off and whole different uh, areas. And then they wrote about it somehow. And we had that preserved. It's just adding all this extra stuff. And the reason why it's on here is because the guy knows we don't have that evidence, but we, we shouldn't expect it. That's the point. Reasonable historical analysis. I don't expect this evidence. That's the real issue here. Uh, on a flip side, I will say this, that there are people around the globe who have said they've had personal experiences with Christ. Um, I've, I've, I've met people like this who told me their personal testimony. They seem to have no reason to lie about it. Um, and I don't think it's as strong as the testimony I have in the text of scripture, of course, but I do think it's interesting how many people have like, say, turned to Christ after seeing visions of Jesus uh, in the Middle East when they had no access to the gospel and they became a follower of Jesus. I met a Muslim man who had this experience. He was working at a suit store in LA, told me his testimony. And he was just like, man, I was a Muslim and I, I had a vision. Christ appeared to me and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. There was no one to preach the gospel to him. He ended up coming to the U.S. after that. And now he has a, an online outreach to uh, Muslim, Muslims. 
that he does. And he got all excited because he asked what I needed the suit for. And I told him it was because I was a pastor. And he um, he was like, oh, let me tell you my story, you know. Um, now, maybe you don't like that evidence, but I'm just saying you asked for it. And it certainly is something you can investigate if that's what you want. But it has nothing to do with a historical investigation. Because if Jesus rose, we wouldn't naturally expect appearances in other countries. You just wouldn't. The second example is this. Eyewitness testimony of Jesus appearing before people in various continents. This person gives three. The second one is written testimony from Pilate saying he he saw the risen Jesus or written testimony from the Sanhedrin saying they saw the risen Jesus. And I thought that this particular guy was like really close to the target. Like he's, he's here in my question. What historical evidence would I expect to find that I might consider, you know, worth weighing in on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ? Um, I'll call it extraordinary in this case. And he goes, eyewitness testimony of Jesus appearing before people in various continents. Again, we get the issue of continents. I don't understand why continents are involved in this. But I do see this. He's saying eyewitness testimony of people who say they saw him alive. This seems to be really important. And that is definitely what we have in the text of the Bible. We definitely have that. And we have more than just that. Uh, but we have that as well. Uh, then his his second one, his second two examples, or the second and third example, is written testimony from Pilate and written testimony from the Sanhedrin. I'm assuming that this is considered important because Pilate and the Sanhedrin were not followers of Jesus. Pilate was kind of indifferent, right? The Sanhedrin was 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 against Christ as a as a whole group, not every individual, but as a group they were. So it's like, yeah, but if one of them converted, if one of these people who were not originally followers, if they saw Jesus and they wrote it down and they gave us their testimony, that would be powerful. And I just want to say, like, that's the evidence we have with Paul and James. Paul, who was more, more than Pilate or even the Sanhedrin, he was persecuting openly and actively the, the Christian church and he hated the name of Christ. And he ends up giving his life to Christ because of what he says was an appearance of the bodily risen Jesus, uh, which any careful reading of the of 1 Corinthians or the other related passages will give you this. Um, so we have this kind of evidence like, bingo, that, that is the extraordinary evidence we want and it's the extraordinary evidence we have. All right, let's go to the third one. Um, the third person who answered, and they said, if God sincerely wants mankind to know about it, he could have arranged to have someone document Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and protect the originals for all time. And you wouldn't have to debate this 2,000 years after. Instead, if your God is real, it seems he loves confusion. Um, and this is a, this is more of the kind of sarcastic, It's it's like, the outgrowth of bitterness when you can't even talk about the issues without taking these like sarcastic swipes at God. Um, it's just the way it is. Unfortunately, there's this, there's all kinds of other issues going on there that have nothing to do with intellect and reason. But look at what the, this, this person's asking for. I'm like, hey, we want documented evidence, documented accounts of Jesus's life, death and resurrection. We have that. This is the evidence we have. So, okay, great. In that case, extraordinary evidence. We've got it. We're good to go. He also, though, says he wants the originals protected for all time. And to that, I'll just say, yes, we have the originals protected. The data in the originals is protected. Um, I have a whole thing on my uh, evidence for the Bible series where we talk about the transmission of the text over time. And yeah, we we absolutely have what uh, what they wrote. It's, uh, it's, it's often overblown by people online and stuff like that. But when you get to the details, even guys like Bart Ehrman, who is probably 
worked the hardest to popularize the idea that we don't have what they wrote. When you actually ask him, he says, yeah, we probably have pretty much what they wrote. And it's, it's just, he's, he's, he's a little squirrely is what he is. Um, leading people sometimes to believe things that maybe he doesn't believe. Um, anyhow. Yeah, so we have, we have the originals protected in the sense that the original content is protected. We can trace it back to the originals because of the multiple uh, copying, copies and how frequently they were made and how quickly they spread and how we can compare them. And that's the whole discipline of textual criticism. It exists for that very reason. So this is like, boom, okay, we have that. We have this. Okay, let's look at the next one. Okay, this now we get into the weird ooky stuff. Um, here's what we should reasonably expect to find according to one skeptic who says that they follow this saying, extraordinary evidence saying. They say what would count as extraordinary evidence would be a Bible found on the moon along with pictures from 2,000 years ago. Also, along with the Bible, a list of predictions over the next few days and weeks after the discovery of the Bible to demonstrate its authenticity. Okay, uh, all I can say is no historical investigation says if this event really happened, we should find it documented on the moon. Like this is no, <laughs> this is not how it works. Um, we can't reasonably expect that if Jesus rose, we'll find documentation on the moon. We, we can't reasonably expect that. That's weird. Um, also pictures with pictures. I mean, there were no pictures back then. So, so can we reasonably expect that there would be any pictures of Jesus? No, that's not reasonable. I feel silly trying to explain these two facts right now. That is not reasonable. It is not reasonable. And I may not be able to convince this individual. I have no idea. But for anybody who's objectively listening in, you know, that is not reasonable. Finally, he mentioned something else I find really interesting. Predictions over the next few days to confirm what? That this is like, you know, that God really has spoken in this text that is divinely inspired. We have to have prophetic predictions. And for that, I say, bingo, we have that. We have that. We have that in the text of the scripture. We have predictions and then we have events that happen separated from the predictions by a good time and distance and boom, they happen. And uh, again, that's in my evidence for the Bible series. I get into some of those, only some of those issues. And I would encourage you guys to check it out if you haven't. All right, look at the next one. What would be count? What would count as extraordinary evidence? Contemporary writings of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, originals protected. Are these guys copying each other? <laughs> they might be, I don't know. Um, we, we have basically that. Now, some people will nitpick over the word contemporary, but no historian looking at the texts expects writings about Jesus's death and resurrection during Jesus's life. Think about that for just a moment, right? That's, that, that's an unreasonable request. We expect it to come after, but what we have, you know, you can't write things down before they happen. I mean, that's prophecy. I guess we, we do have that in, in the old Testament we have prophecy about Jesus's life, death and resurrection. So there we have that, but, but this is, but this is unreasonable to expect it of the new Testament documents. So what we do have though, is very early documents that are very close to the events and multiple documents accounting, recounting these different things. And we have 1 Corinthians 15, which I've talked about several times now, so I won't break it down again, but which takes the central aspects of the resurrection, right? The death, the burial, the resurrection, the, the same things that are mentioned here, his life, death, resurrection, the appearances and all that. And it puts it within five years of the crucifixion of Jesus. So that is so close and so near the time that we can say that we have a good 
uh, near contemporary or or some would even call it contemporary historical account. Okay, then he goes on, this same person. He says, even better, his, his preference. What's better would be, 12 angels appear to 12 prophets in 12 parts of the world, speaking 12 languages. At the same time, with the same message, not proof, but way better than anything we have now. But this again dodges the question, because the question was, what can we reasonably expect if we're doing a historical evaluation about whether Jesus rose? I wouldn't reasonably expect that if Jesus rose, there should automatically be 12 angels and 12 prophets and all that. And then we get to second to last example here. This person said, the resurrection would be an extraordinary explanation, a conclusion significantly unlike what we normally observe, arrived at by discovery of extraordinary evidence. Such evidence would include Contemporaneous video recording by an alien species reliably transmitted to us. I'm pretty sure, based on the guy that did this response on Twitter, that he has a PhD. And he says that we should have alien recording, aliens video recording the, the resurrection and then transmitting it to us and we have some way of knowing that it's not a hoax. Is that what you should reasonably expect when you're digging into history to see if what happened in the first century was the actual resurrection? No, I'm sorry. I, yeah, last one. All right, how about a signed first century testimony from Pilate to which I raise you Paul the apostle, right? I mean, we say signed, I assume we mean authentic, right? We have authentic writings of Paul uh, and him talking about how he went from a changed life from uh, persecuting Christians to believing in Christ that he'd physically risen because he said he saw him alive. He died for that belief. He was obviously sincere. That's pretty significant. Paul was much more of a, of a enemy of Christ than Pilate ever was. And so I would say Paul is better than Pilate in this scenario. Uh, we don't have any writings from Pilate, by the way, so we don't know what he thought or wrote. Um, so we don't really expect anything there. But then he goes on after the Pilate example, he says, how about a VHS Betamax, iPod, iPad, iPhone recording of the resurrection that can be carbon dated. Too unreasonable? To which I say, yes. Yes. Like you don't dig into history and expect to find video recordings. That's not a reasonable expectation. So what I'm saying here is all these examples I've given us, that I've pulled right from the people themselves, it serves to show us that this claim, extraordinary evidence require, or, you know, claims require extraordinary evidence, that, that phrase is being used to dodge what I should expect to find to confirm an event and to create weird expectations that are unreasonable. That's the problem I have with this claim. So that's the second problem, by the way. So the first problem was, I believe it's somewhat self-defeating. The second one is there's no clear definition of extraordinary. And then the third problem I've got with the claim is it results in rejecting any claim you want, which becomes confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, most, most of us know this, but confirmation bias is like when you when you, um, you you conveniently find what you're looking for, regardless of the actual evidence. And um, here's how it works. Whatever I consider under as extraordinary, it's under extra scrutiny. If, if somebody else would think, oh, it's really extraordinary to think Jesus rose and that God exists. I mean, God's existence is really extraordinary. Now, yet, yet, I think that God's existence is not extraordinary. I think it would be incredibly extraordinary if God didn't exist. I think that would be the weirdest thing in the world. I think that the existence of anything 
is evidence for the existence of God. That's a bold claim, but I think it's absolutely true. The evidence for design is evidence for God. Uh, morality is evidence for God. Prophecy and God speaking through the scriptures, that's evidence for God. And because God's, he's a necessary being, this is a whole realm of philosophy I'm probably not qualified to try to comment on, but God's a necessary being. Like he must exist. I think it's impossible for God to not exist. So how extraordinary would it be if God didn't exist? So, so we have two people on two different sides. One says, I'll be super skeptical of anything related to God because I think it's so extraordinary for him to exist. And another person says, hey man, if it really is related to God, well, that makes sense because God does exist. It would be extraordinary to think otherwise. So we can kind of use it as confirmation bias. I can use it to, to prove whatever I want to prove or, or basically reject whatever I want to reject. So that's number three. Number four, it results in ignoring good evidence using double standards and sometimes special pleading. Normal historical examination would give us the resurrection of Christ. If you just normally examine the evidence, I think it would give you the resurrection of Jesus. I think a fair-minded analysis of the evidence, if someone's not getting a hold of you and tricking you on your understanding of what, what, what you're looking at, I think it would give you belief in the resurrection of Christ, that it really happened, if you just saw it as a historical event. Um, but no, because it's extraordinary. We can't, we can't allow that kind of thing to happen. So you have some people, right, have a special set of skeptical tools there's tools that they use to help them determine truth, right? But they only use these tools when they're applying them to supernatural claims, like the resurrection. They don't use them to other things, right? Like I'm not going to use, my mom says, I love you. And I go, you know, mom, love's a pretty extraordinary claim. I'd like to see some extraordinary evidence that you love me. Like what? Like videotape of aliens from aliens, right? Filming you, um, you know, doing acts of love and I can carbon date it and it's signed by pilot, right? Like this is what I need to, to prove your love. I mean, obviously I'm not going to do that. If I apply this, this standard everywhere, I'll disbelieve everything. But if I apply it just to the things I don't want to believe, then I will protect myself from evidence that causes me to believe those things. And that's how I see this thing being used. Um, that's, that's what special pleading is. I apply this principle only in some places. So this has led uh, some people, I don't know where this originally came from. This is, this is their summary of the argument, uh, argumentum Sagani or Sagan's, Carl Sagan's argument. And the idea is that um, they evaluated his claim, extraordinary claims claim, and they said this falls short and put it in this form. Uh, premise one, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Premise two, the claim that a miracle has occurred is extraordinary. Therefore... Number three, any evidence supporting it ought to be extraordinary as well. Number four, I'm not really sure what I mean by extraordinary. And as I've demonstrated, neither is hardly anybody else. Number five, but whatever you come up with, it is not going to work. Therefore, number six, no one is justified in believing any miracle claim. And so it's, it's not like what you would consider rigorous, careful thinking. It's just a dismissal of what I don't want to believe. It's confirmation bias. Which leads me to number five, the last of my reasons why I think this is a, a bunch of baloney sauce, this idea. And this is actually a set of problems um, related to prior probability or inherent improbability. That's the idea. Um, so when I say inherent improbability, I'm talking about the extraordinary claim part of the claim. When, when people look at the resurrection of Christ and they go, what are the chances Jesus rose? And they try to put like a number on it. Um, that's where things get all haywire, in my opinion. Let me give you 
some examples. Uh, the first issue is this. We tend to be really bad at determining probabilities. It's just like a human thing. We're not super good at guessing at what the chances are of an event happening. I remember uh, I was hanging out with a group of friends when I was I was probably like my early 20s and we're all chilling together. Uh, we had no money. So we, we would just like drive places and walk around. Okay, this is like what we would do. And uh, we're hanging out and I got my buddy Jaime with me, good friend of mine. And I'm looking at this fountain in front of us and it was this massive fountain. It seemed really big. And I looked at it and I thought, there's no way anybody could jump over that fountain. It's just so long. It's so wide. There's just no way. And so I told my friend Jaime, I said, Jaime, I'll give you 20 bucks if you jump over this fountain. You see, because I had a prior probability, there's no way it can't happen. And so my friend Jaime, he was like 20 bucks, which I had hardly any money too. So to both of us, that was a lot of money. He takes a running jump and I thought, oh no, he's going to end up soaking wet. And I, I shouldn't have said anything, but he clears the fountain and like a year later, I gave him 20 bucks because I was like, I, I felt robbed, but I was just foolish. So I finally gave him his 20 bucks. He did it. He cleared the fountain. See, the problem is I assumed that it couldn't be the case. And so I was so confident with my assumption of prior probability that I didn't, I didn't have a realistic analysis and I ended up owing him 20 bucks, which was an awful lot of money at the time. Um, so it can be problematic, especially if you're using the inherent improbability thing. If you're in, if you're using that to keep evidence from affecting the way you affecting you the way it normally does, I won't let evidence lead me there because of this my opinion, my feeling about how probable the event is. So the first one issue is that we're just not very good at guessing at probabilities. Uh, the issue number two is how do you determine that the resurrection of Jesus is such a low probability? I've actually listened to people try to figure this out and they'll talk about the chances usually of a resurrection happening randomly. They'll go, oh, well, there's, there's, you know, this many billions of people that have been on the earth. And as far as we know, none of them have risen. Of course, well, we don't know anything about most of those people. So we should reduce the number to the ones we actually know about, not theoretical people, but one, ones where we know they died and didn't rise. Okay. Well, now it gets a lot smaller, but, but still there's a bigger problem here. It's not like Jesus rose naturally. It's not like we're saying Jesus rose because one out of every 12 billion people spontaneously rise from the dead. We're not, it's not like it was a number on a die and you roll the right number, you get the resurrection. So that doesn't even apply to the resurrection of Christ. It's the chances of God raising Jesus intentfully, purposefully. So then we have to consider things like God, mankind, and reasons God might have for raising Jesus. If we're going to even start figuring out what are the chances that God would raise Jesus, which I don't think I'm qualified to do. But if you're going to try to go down that road, you have to think about things like, well, he, you know, he may have done this to demonstrate his love, or we have evidence to consider that God exists, really strong, good evidence, lots of it. Um, it would restore fallen humanity. It would fix the brokenness of the world. It deals with the need for justice and mercy. It fulfills prophecy and God's agenda for having a relationship with his creation. All of a sudden I'm going, wait a minute, maybe the prior probability of Jesus raising isn't so astronomically low that that uh, that evidence should be ignored. And so that's one of the issues. We're not very good at evaluating these things. One scholar who's actually done serious work on this is a guy named Richard Swinburne. You're welcome to look him up online. Richard Swinburne, you can find some free stuff from him, even like free lectures on YouTube on the topic of the prior probability of the resurrection. So just Google like Richard Swinburne, prior probability of the resurrection. And then I'll get to come to number three. My third issue of my fifth issue <laughs> this related to prior probability. Evidence can overcome even extremely low probabilities. 
So you might say, you might say that a miracle seems incredibly improbable. I don't know how you get that probability because we're not saying it happened naturally. So then it kind of doesn't make sense to apply natural probabilities to it. Um, but if you say it has a really, really low probability, that's fine. Fine. Let's just say that. That doesn't mean we should stop our research there. We should ignore the normal way we investigate evidence and just say, well, it's improbable. Um, let's forget about it. No, instead we go, yeah, okay, it's improbable. Let's it, But let's examine the evidence to see if it happened anyways. Because you know there's improbable things that just happen anyways. So we should just ask, did it happen? That's the ultimate question. Is not, what are the chances? It's, did it happen? That's the question. We don't end our search when we figure out the chances of something happening, right? Because evidence can overcome inherent prior improbability. So this is what uh, critics of David Hume raised against him. David Hume, who's the guy who kind of like probably fed the philosophical move that moved Sagan, that got Hitchens, that turned into the internet meme that is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, David Hume, he had been uh, using something very similar to this. And the critics against him, they were like, David, your pro the problem with you is you say it's unlikely, but then you never examine the evidence to see if it happened. And let me quote David Hume to you. This is how he treats the evidence. See, this causes us to have confirmation bias, to ignore evidence. And that's what it did to David Hume. He says, should this miracle be ascribed to any new system of religion? This very circumstance would be a full proof of a cheat and sufficient with all men of sense, not only to make them reject the fact, but even reject it without further examination. This is That's on Hume's uh, Hume's uh, uh, paper of miracles, part two, uh, paragraph 38 that I just read to you. And he says, don't even examine the evidence. As soon as there's a miracle claim and they're saying it's part of some religious thing, throw it out. Don't even look at it any further. That's That was Hume's philosophy. Again, in the same uh, paper, part two, paragraph 26, he says, a miracle supported by any human testimony was more properly the subject of derision than of argument. Don't even argue, don't even think about it, don't even talk about it. Just make fun of it. Like this is, I mean, what's funny is I hear I hear Christopher Hitchens saying that Christianity has to be mocked and ridiculed. And I hear the, the, the new atheist group saying that they have to ridicule, ridicule, ridicule. And I'm like, dude, that was Hume in the 1700s he was saying this. And it was based on his idea that he would just have this confirmation bias. Let's just reject the evidence and let's ridicule anyone who tries to present evidence. Don't think it through, just make fun of it. Like that's like brainwashing status right there. So let me give you a couple examples of how um, evidence can overcome inherent improbability. This is just super practical stuff just to help us think it through. And I'm gonna go to your guys' questions pretty soon here. Um, so you get a call. You wait, you wake up in the morning, early morning, you get a call that you have to come into work on your day off because your coworker didn't show up. So imagine this is you, but you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, that coworker, Jeff, he's like the most reliable guy in the world. In 20 years, he has never missed a day. I, I remember yesterday when he told me, I'll see you tomorrow. And I was like, oh, that's my day off, Jeff. But that means that Jeff was going to be there. So I think the prior probability of Jeff missing work is very, very low. So you go back to bed. You wake up five minutes later to a text message and it's from Jeff, your coworker. And he's saying, I had a family emergency. I need you to cover for me at work. And you think to yourself, you know, I had a phone call from work. I had a text from Jeff, but you know what? Couldn't it be a mistake? Couldn't they be lying? Could this be a hacked account? Couldn't there be a, just a plethora of other explanations of this? I mean, the prior probability of Jeff missing work is very low. So you go back to sleep. 
do you, do you guys get the point? It's like me when I looked at the fountain and I thought, there's no way that anyone can jump this fountain. It's just too big. It's too long. And then I motivated my buddy with 20 bucks and he jumped the fountain. What if I just said, you know, I, I think I saw Jaime jump the fountain, but you know what? The prior probability of him jumping that fountain is so low that even the evidence of me seeing him do it, it just can't overcome that probability. This is just confirmation bias, circular reasoning, whatever you want to call it. It's not what you call good thinking. And uh, it is how people approach the resurrection. So, um, yeah, here's an example of how the evidence of the resurrection can overcome what some people would think is the low probability of Jesus rising. So what are the chances uh, that the evidence would be just as it is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? This is a question that they'll ask themselves. Um, Jesus, we have his claims and apparent miracles. We have his death, burial, and the empty tomb. We have his appearances of Jesus to individuals and groups. Some of them who were family members who knew him very well. Others who were his enemies, um, or, or like Paul, or those who didn't follow him, like James. Um, we have the disciples' transformation of life against all expectation. They weren't expecting this at all. There was no religious fervor built up to cause this to happen. In fact, the opposite is the case. Um, they were willing to suffer and die. Uh, they, they, they have the accounts written down, the explosion of the early church, the conversion of Paul, the enemy, and James, the brother. I mean, what would it take for you to believe your brother rose from the dead and was the Lord of all when you had every reason uh, to be predisposed against such a thing? We have the rise of the early church, which is very extraordinary when you actually get into the details of it. Um, it was founded on the idea that Jesus rose. That's significant. It's something we should at least, you know, think about and consider and process. What if we bring more data, though? What if we give more data for the resurrection? We go, hey, we have reasons to believe God exists, reasons to see that God has spoken through the scriptures, seeing Old Testament prophecy, and reason to think that Jesus is the center of that revelation of God that we have coming from the Bible. And we put all this together and we go, um, yeah, I think that overcomes whatever improbability you think you found. Uh, there's more. I could talk about the general reliability of the scriptures or of, of the gospels, for instance. Um, so I'm just going to say this, the truism, you know, the, the phrase, last time I'll say it, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. It doesn't keep us from being gullible. It keeps us from following the evidence to conclusions we're not inclined to believe. It potentially keeps us in denial. That I think is the function of it. And um, while I think some people might, might find use in it, it's too sloppy. It should be disregarded. What we should say is evidence makes a claim believable when the data is better explained by the hypothesis being true than by its negation. And yes, it's not, it doesn't rhyme, it's not catchy, but it's just good thinking, right? Um, it makes more sense that Jesus rose than that Jesus didn't rise based on the available evidence. That's the simple answer to your question there. So I want to mention before we go to the Q&A um, that while this reasoning, this stuff through, thinking this stuff through is really important and I think it's valuable and I think it does lead people to the Lord, our minds themselves, they're not independent of our spiritual condition. And there are times where people, they think they're wise, but they're becoming fools like Romans 1 talks about. And for those who are living in an active rejection of the real God who truly exists, it's not going to be as easy to think clearly about these issues. Um, that, that just seems to be the truth of it. And I also um, think it's healthy for us to recognize that. I think apologetics is useful. I think it's really important, but I don't want to oversell it or overstate overstate it. But I love thinking clearly about this stuff. And I love taking these like a slogan like this and unpacking it and thinking it through. So, um, okay, before we get into the Q&A, two quick things, two quick announcements. If you want more information about this stuff, if you want even a better, maybe philosophical breakdown, 
of this slogan. Um, I put a link in the description to a future discussion that's happening on Capturing Christianity's channel with Dr. Tim McGrew, who is an analytical philosopher. Uh, and there's a link below. You can actually go there and, and set a reminder, or if it's after a month from now, it'll already be live. I recommend you check that out. I'll be watching live with you guys probably when that comes out, and I'll chat with you in the comments if you're there. Um, also, other announcement, I'm now pretty much full-time with this online ministry. Um, this is my main source of income is now coming from the the partners who are partnering with me. And you can do that if you like. Uh, the link is in the description for my website, uh, or you could just go to biblethinker.org and you can look and find the donate button if you want to help support this ministry and the work that I'm doing here as I continue to put out theology and apologetics that I think will, God willing, will change the church and, and impact the world uh, for Christ and help us to become biblical uh, believers as they continue to produce content weekly, usually every Tuesday at 5 p.m. And generally speaking, Mondays, my Mark series is coming out once a week on Mondays as well. So let's go to your guys' questions. I already have some over here. And let me just load them on up. First off, thanks for being here with me, you guys. Um, I do appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. I know you're busy. It's Isn't it weird? We're like in the busiest time ever. Seems like we're all oddly busy. And um, maybe there's a good word for us there to um, take deliberate efforts to make ourselves a little less busy in our lives. Um, it's tough because you got to cut things out, but maybe it's a good idea, huh? Anyway, but don't cut out my videos. <laughs> um, okay, Nick Boy Vids has a question. He says, young first-time pastor here. Um, the church is mostly populated by seasoned saints. Any tips on outreach to youth or college age? Um, um, I think that, I guess... I'll give you a couple ideas, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll fully admit that my strong suit has never been the um, coordinating big, like sort of buzzy events where a lot of people show up and that you have like a big impact in that way. Um, for me, it's always been discipleship and, and teaching, you know, and that's been my thing. I do think, though, for college age people um, that you should be considering that they're looking and, and need social structure and regular gatherings and events. And they do need this to socialize with other Christians as well as to be discipled um, educationally, like we taught the scriptures, but I think creating an environment where they're actually connecting with one human to another human being plugged in and part of the church is a massively important thing. And it doesn't have to be all college age, but I think college age need that in particular. I'm not really sure what other uh, tips to give you as far as outreach goes, except that I think that you should just experiment. Just go for it, man. Go on the college campus and just start talking to people. Um, try an event. Talk to the to the college people in your church and just ask them, like, what do you think would be an effective way to, to reach out to people and see what happens with it? Um, yeah. Uh, Sadie Mayo, who is a long, long, long time friend of mine. I've known her since high school. So hi, Sadie. Um, she says, uh, have you ever asked atheists why they even worry why people believe in God? If so, what do they say? Um, I don't ever ask that question, Sadie, because you'll, I feel like you'll get, I'll be honest with you. I feel like a lot of times you'll get a tirade answer about how evil religion is. Um, and I'm not interested in hearing those kinds of things. And so that would be the thing. I worry about your guide because, because of, you know, the crusades and because of, um, you know, the, the shooting in this synagogue or the bombing in that church. And that'll be, that'll be the response. Not, not recognizing that that's really not a care. It's not a good way to think about it, <laughs> to be honest, right? We don't judge the truth of Christianity by those who violate Christian truth and do such horrific and terrible things. But anyways, 
Um, yeah, I, I wonder what the real secret motivations are of people's hearts. I don't know, especially people who are just bent on just trying their hardest to even be dishonest and attack the Christian faith online. I'm like, I don't know what's going on in your heart, but it's not a good thing. Um, God knows. Uh, not that everybody's like that. I'm just saying for those people, I, I wonder the most. So Peanut Warrior has a question. Hey, Pastor Mike, this will be my last stream for a few months. Oh, we'll miss you. We'll miss you, Peanut Warrior. Um, I'm going to to basic next Tuesday. Wow. I was curious if you had some tips on how to effectively evangelize to my peers. Wow. Um, get Greg Kokel's book, Tactics. That would, it's, it's, full of like strategies on how to have one-on-one -on -one conversations about these kinds of issues. And I would also recommend alongside Greg Kogel's tactics um, that you consider looking at the videos from Living Waters. Living Waters has a lot of videos where they're engaging one-on-one -on -one with conversations and they segue and move into discussions about God. And you can learn and glean just tips from the way that they do that. I think that when you know people, it's not hard to talk to them uh, in my opinion, it's strangers going up to a stranger to talk to them about God. People, especially where I live, are so uptight about it, right? That that it's difficult to have a friendly conversation, even if that's what you want to have. It can happen, but it's a little more uh, difficult. Um, so there's a couple resources for you. Other tips I would say is um, evangelism should be your priority, but um, but loving the person, not just loving your goal of evangelizing the person. That's really important. Uh, asking them questions and listening to them and the way that they talk to you, that's really important. And being able to just be matter of fact about your Christian faith, man, it's just true. And you're not embarrassed about it. I think that's a powerful thing. Just that simple thing right there. So there's a few things for you there. Um, expect that there'll be blowback, uh, but always respond in love, turn the other cheek. Uh, Caleb Broussard says, Pastor Mike, Thank you so much for your videos uh, recently. And by the way, you're very welcome. Um, it is my privilege and honor. Uh, recently, a pastor at my church preached something that wasn't theologically sound. Is it wrong for me to approach them and tell them they're wrong? No, not at all. If I was at your church and I taught something that wasn't sound, I would hope you would come and tell me. And I would hope that I would have the humility to listen. And so I would encourage you to go for it. I realize this could cause problems for you. <laughs> but... You won't know if there's a bridge for accountability and discussion unless you try it. So um, be very thoughtful of how you'll start the conversation and of what you'll say. Because a lot of times pastors, uh, they're you know, busy people and they're not going to hear maybe your whole argument if you make it long. So you might want to think, how do I get out the most important points fairly quickly? Just a, just a simple tip. Not everybody's patiently going to listen, especially if they feel like you're disagreeing. They're going to maybe want to cut you off. So you might say, can I explain something to you? And I might be wrong here, but I think that you might have said something that wasn't accurate and I want to talk to you about it. Is that okay? And then get into it. Um, yeah. And I pray that they have the humility to listen. Uh, Todd Smith says, how do I deal with coworkers, uh, fellow officers who want proof of God's existence? It's a real problem in my department. Todd, I, um, I would say there are, there's tons of proof for God's existence. And part of it is just that it's like people have a hard time thinking about it. So what you can do is you can, um, you can learn the arguments for God's existence. And that could be, um, on some of my videos on prophecy, like on Psalm 22 in particular, if you, if you look it up, I have a Google, uh, if you just 
YouTube, Google, or whatever. I have a video on Psalm 22. You could actually take notes about Psalm 22 and how it relates to Christ, and you could bring it to them, or Isaiah 53, and you could show it to them. Show them Isaiah 53, be like, who do you think that's about? Do you know that was written over 500 years before Jesus was even born? Um, you can talk to them about those kinds of things that may be profound. You could talk to them about design. That's like the teleological argument for God's existence or different arguments for God's existence, basically. And so one resource for this is um, uh, a book by William Lane Craig, um, On Guard. Okay, On Guard is a more simple version of the book, Reasonable Faith. Reasonable Faith is like very challenging, um, you know, for, for laymen like myself and you, right? It's very challenging for us. On guard, though, might present things in a more simple way that I think will be better for your conversations. And then if you feel like you have to, you could look at reasonable faith. So there's there's some ideas for you right there. Um, and reasonable faith actually has videos. You could even go on their YouTube channel. They've got reasonable faith has these short videos on evidence for God, arguments for God's existence. And they're just like, boom, 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 really short, but they're solid arguments. And then if you learn them, you can defend it. You could send your coworkers those videos. Um, yeah, yeah. Hopefully that'll help. Uh, Josie J. Hi, Josie. Good to hear from you. Uh, she says, do you think a particular heart condition is needed to be able to see the reliability of the evidence you're presenting? Um, and then she references a scripture. So let's go to the passage because she's asking specifically about, oh, and that was the passage I was looking at earlier. Luke, speaking of heart conditions, Luke chapter 10, verse 23 and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that uh, that see what you see. For I tell you that not that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, Jesus does talk about people who um, they have hardened hearts and that is an issue. So you're right that that's an issue. People have, have hardened hearts. Uh, but I, have, I don't think this passage is about that. I think that the, in context, I think what Jesus is saying here is he's saying um, that his coming is the fulfillment of the prophets and many of them in the past desired to see these days. And there they are living in the middle of it, like walking with Jesus, like seeing him, hearing him, learning from him. And they're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. So that's what he's talking about here. It was, they really desired and here it is now it's really happening. But I do think there's other scriptures that talk about the hardness of hearts and the blindness of eyes that is based upon spiritual issues. And I've even talked to former atheists who on both sides. Some, they came to God because of argumentation. That was a big part of them coming to God. And others who, um, they just had an experience where God changed their lives. Like it was the spiritual renewal, transformation, and then they could see the folly that they had believed before. And they were like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? So it may be that it happens both ways. And maybe I don't know how to, how to figure out which person's in which situation. So I just, I throw it all out there. Here's the gospel. Here's the evidence. Here's the preaching. Here's the here's the apologetics. And just let land what lands. That's kind of how I do it. All right, this will be our last question for tonight. This is, this comes from um, from Pine Creek. He says, uh, "What single piece of evidence would you need to believe that I own a car? How about believing that I own a fire breathing dragon? It's always a dragon. It's always a fire breathing dragon." <laughs> um. Uh, well. Um. Yeah, so I, I have a lot of evidence suggesting that you you very well may own a car just based upon what I know about, um, you know, people living in the first world countries, in first world countries and that kind of thing. But I have good evidence that you probably don't own a dragon. So I would say I have another problem. The phrase, I own a dragon, comes out 
when you're trying to give an example of a ridiculous claim that no one should believe. So the context of when I'm hearing the phrase makes me not want to believe it. But this has very little to do with the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Because it's not based upon someone just blindly claiming, hey, Jesus rose. Ha <laughs> ha. Like that's not the evidence for the resurrection by any stretch of the imagination, right? We have we have stacks of evidence. We have a gigantic and complex case for the resurrection. In fact, when I present the case, I have to cut out a whole bunch of it just to fit it into a presentation. Um, so we have a lot of different pieces of evidence supporting the resurrection of Christ. And if you're going to say the resurrection of Christ is a mythological thing like fire breathing, a fire breathing dragon is, then I would say there's a parallel that doesn't parallel. Um, uh, yeah, the myth, the supposed mythological foundations of Jesus and his resurrection don't exist. That's just uh, internet hokum. Um, and uh, I'll do a video on that one day. So yeah. Okay, guys, I hope that this has been a blessing to you. I hope that uh, you have been equipped to handle maybe a conversation. You can go through those five points. You can ask people, hey, when you say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, can you give me an example of what makes a claim extraordinary? Can you give me an example of what makes evidence extraordinary? Can you give me an example of historical evidence I would expect to find if Jesus had risen from the dead that you would consider extraordinary? Um, these are the kinds of questions that help can help suss out the idea that this is um, ultimately a, 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 a confirmation bias thing instead of a careful reasoning and logic thing. So yeah, Lord bless you guys. Uh, have a wonderful day. And I guess that's all I have to say.